have a seat there. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Philippians chapter 2. While you turn there, let me give you the three statements that have kind of governed this love to love um, series that we are going through. Really just going through and studying the one another passages because there's several of them in there. But kind of to give us an overlay or kind of to succinctly define what we're trying to do, here are the three statements. The command is this. It is to love. The example that we have is Christ, and the purpose is others. And so if you were going to adopt a single, single word for this year, maybe go through that practice. I know many do, and maybe you already have because we're a week or so in. But I would encourage you to at least tack on. Maybe this can be a, a double-worded year for you, but maybe others could be part of it. I believe that we are in a time right now where we need to figure out ways to be others-focused. And thankfully this morning we do have the truth of God's word. We do have opportunity to study it, to hear from God, because again, we are in a time right now where there is a, there is a confusion about what is true. There is a lack of confidence in whether or not we even know what's true concerning what's going on around us. We don't know what the numbers are. We don't know if they are true. We don't know what opinions are. We don't know if they're true. It just seems like right now our, wor our, our world is grasping at straws, trying to figure out what is true. Meanwhile, churches like ours come together. We study what is true, and then yet we never release it, and we never tell our story and answer that question of what is true. Hey, this is a shameless plug. On Wednesday nights, we started a series this past week on our core beliefs. What is it that we stand on as a church? And the first thing we studied is we stand on God's word unapologetically and unashamedly. If we were to take any different route, then we are no longer a church anymore because everything that we know, everything that we learn, all the obedience that we demonstrate is deeply rooted in the word of God. And so one of the things that I wanted to share with you and to love to love series is found here in Philippians chapter 2. Now, Paul had some apparent fears for this church. Uh, word had gotten back to him that inside of this fellowship was some disunity, that they were bickering back and forth, and, and under the inspiration of God, he decides that through the, the means of a letter, he addresses this lack of unity in that body of believers. Now, I told you, on the outset of this study, the idea of unity in the church and the demonstration of love go hand in hand. They're not really separable. What does the Bible say? By our love for the brethren, do we show the world that we are true believers? We are followers in Christ. And so when there is disunity in the body of Christ, then there is also an inability to explain and to share with others the love of Christ if we can't get along within the room. And so when Paul hears about disunity in the church in Philippi, he writes this letter to address that issue because he knew that unity was a, it's one of those core beliefs that, that there is nothing to divide the church. The topic of unity is so important that Paul, listen, Paul addresses that topic in every letter that he writes to every church in Scripture. Now listen, if there is that big of a common theme that when he writes to every church in it, he always includes instruction on unity, could we, is it safe to say that it's probably a topic of importance? 
And so with this topic of unity, we have to ask them, what's the big deal? Why does it matter? Well, disunity grieves God. No, listen, this is not an all at all costs kind of unity, okay? I don't want you to miss this. Unity that is full of compromise, that is not the unity that we're looking for here. When I tell you that our church and when I tell you that Christians must be built on the foundation of God's word, we are not looking for opportunities to compromise on what God's word teaches us is right and wrong. We as a church should never compromise biblical standards for the sake of unity. It should be the opposite. In unity, we stand on biblical principles. And so when God says, thou shalt not, and we might say, I don't like, that's not a, that's not a thing for us. We don't have opportunity to tell God, you might like this, and you might not want this for my life, but I do. That is not our ability to say. And so as a church, we build our unity on the thou shalt nots. We build our, our, our unity on the thou shalts. And one of those building blocks of loving to love found in God's word is this building block of unity. Because listen, it's, it's hard to love other people when we can't see eye to eye with them, isn't it? That's tough. And so, for example, unity around biblical teaching of burden-bearing, as we looked in Galatians 5, is vital. We build our unity on that. But here's one thing. Unity around the style of music or the temperature of the auditorium is not one of the divisive things that we should be dealing with. So here's, the, here's three more statements. You ready? You, you saw the first one. The command is love. The example is Christ. Why do we go through that? Because it's others-focused. How do we maintain that unity? Here's three more statements, and, and we'll get to Philippians 2. In the majors, those doctrinal issues, those core beliefs, those irreducible minimums that we refuse to bend on, those demand action. Remember these statements? In the minors, those things that may not have biblical precepts and principles to follow, these would be more opinions and preferences. It demands for the sake of unity acceptance. But as Paul calls us, especially in the book of 1 Corinthians, in all things, we do them with what? With love. And folks, I'm going to tell you right now, I got off on a fit in Sunday school, and I somewhat apologize, but not totally. We are living in a world right now that needs the demonstration of Christian love. Um, Jody did not do a good job this morning because the wood is still damp. Um, listen to me. We are in a world right now that has to see that Christians love them. I understand that we disagree with them, and we're never going to agree with the unsaved world. It's not going to happen. But if our heart's desire simply is the purpose of others, then what is the, could there be a better way to be others-focused to a, to a lost world than to figure out ways to love them? Find one. Because God says the primary means, the primary avenue to demonstrating um, our concern and our heart for the unsaved world is through acts of love. And Jesus, and I don't want to say too much because this is what Paul is outlining for this church, who they couldn't show love to the world because they couldn't show love to each other. And they were so consumed with a distracting argument. Here's the beauty of the statement. In Philippians 2, we do not know what the source of the issue was. Isn't that interesting? 
We don't know the topic at hand that was so divisive in the church of Philippi, and I think that there is a reason behind that, much like we don't know what was going on in David's heart in Psalm 31 that I just read to you. All we knew was there was disunity in the church that was being sowed by two different believers, and it was causing a faction. It was dividing the church literally in half. And Paul says, you cannot get so wrapped up in this, and I'm not even going to address this, I'm going to address the greater issue, and that is the need for unity. And I think, call me crazy, but I think what Philippians 2 has left wide open for us is the ability to have different opinions, yet still remain in unity. It's the difference between, and I saw it pop up there, and I'm going to mention it to you right now, I don't know what it is about being on this leash, but it's almost like I know I can't move, but I do it more when I'm holding this. So if I rip this out of the wall, Mike, <laughs> my bad. Um, it's almost like we have to understand the difference between, do you know the difference between the two words on the screen? There's a difference between unity and uniformity. It's a major difference here. God is calling us in a church to a position of unity, not uniformity. Well, think about this. Unity comes from within. It's the product of understanding and trusting God's word as truth and being obedient to the instructions that are found therein. And so when we just sing at the blessed assurance and we tell people our story, we do so in unity because this is an inside out change that God has done on my life. And we can stand in unity as believers because we have that same fellowship, we have that same faith in Christ. But then we talk about this idea of uniformity, and it would be the opposite. In the book of Romans, Paul's deal, Paul deals with this a lot in this idea of confirmation. Uniformity comes from outside pressures. For example, it would be the pastor demanding things to be done his way with no biblical support or no reasoning as to why or why not. Just saying, this is the way it is because this is how I like it or this is how somebody else likes it. And I know we make jokes about little things because I try to find extreme examples that hopefully will never be an issue. But let's, let's throw out, just, just to paint the picture, let's throw out this idea of room temperature. I mean, think about this. I, I use this because it's a real thing. How many different controls in your car do you have to control the, the temperature in your car? Do you remember the day where you had one switch and that was it? That was a problem. How many marriages had a road bump in them because nobody could agree on the right temperature and you couldn't figure it out, so you argued about it, but you only had one control. Now you have dual climate control. In, our, in a van, you have front passenger, front driver, and a rear control. Why? Because this is an issue of preference. You cannot demand uniformity when it comes to the temperature of something. Now, if you came in and it was 28 degrees like it was outside when you come in here, we would probably be in unity that that was a bad call or that there's something wrong. Do you see the difference? God calls us to a position of unity. Unity around what? It's unity around his word, period. And when preferences are involved... That's when we have to be called to love through acceptance, but in everything, whether it's taking a stand on that which is right biblically or taking a stand on that which we think is right preferentially, in all things, God calls us to do so in love. Now, folks, listen. 
God calls us to unity while maintaining uniqueness. And in Philippians chapter 2, we read this in verse number 2. Paul says, Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, and of one mind. You know, it doesn't take a Greek word study to see the unity that's encouraged in verse number 2. Two times. Same love and being of one accord and of one mind. So really three times you have an instance and, and you don't even have to really parse the words very far to understand that there is a need for unity. Like-mindedness. We have the same love. We are in the same boat of one mind that when it comes to what the Bible says, we are going to take it, we are going to trust it, and we are going to act on it. Now think. How do we preserve unity if it's that big of a deal? Well, that answer brings us to Philippians 2 where we find another one another statement. We remain unified one with another through an aspect that is hard to teach on and it's hard to put into practice. But that attribute is this attribute of humility. So look at verse number 3 with me. How do we preserve unity at Ashland? In the body of Christ in general, we do so with humility. Verse number three, Paul says this. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of, here's our key word in verse number four, right at the end, others. Preserving unity. Well, you see there is Paul gives us in verse number, verse number three, two different motives. What? Why do we do these things? Well, the idea there, and I want you to look a little bit into the verse, and I'm going to come back to the beginning. Let nothing be done through. Can we talk about that word through? It is the idea of the impelling motive. This is why we do what we do. Let nothing be done through, motivated by what? Two different things, strife or vainglory. So our primary motivation between loving each other is not to, first of all, create factions and divisions that might be caused by selfishness. So when I am trying to, to do things the biblical way, when I am trying to preserve unity, I'll tell you the one way we don't do it is by being so selfish as to think that I can cause a split in a church and somehow manage to maintain unity. It can't be done. That doesn't even make sense. But it happens quite a bit. And a lot of topics can creep its way into church and, and through my desire or my biases or my opinions, I can create strife and factions and divisions inside of the church, many of them being selfishly motivated. I don't think that we really need to create a illustration here or define some of the topics right now that can sneak into a church and can cause a major divide. I will tell you this statement. I think, and I believe this to be biblically true, Satan would love nothing more than to take what is going on in our world and to sow into our minds the belief that I'm right and nobody else is and allow that belief system to come into the church and to create a division. Now, I could list specific topics that that could come into play with, I'd rather not. Folks, we have to be on the guard constantly to maintain biblical principles about what is right and what's wrong. And those are the things that we are unified on, not our opinions about what is based in our country. 
Can, can I give you a, a reversal of a mindset? Because I'm telling you, whether you're a Christian, whether you're a conservative, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a liberal, it does not matter. I'm going to give you a statement right now because this is the switch that we have seen, and this is part of the problem. We have allowed our mindset and our priority list to go country, community, then church. And everything about our country has taken the forefront. There's a virus that is plaguing the world. It is real. Nobody's denying that. Nobody is denying that there are, I don't know, there was 20-some people already online right at the beginning of service because a lot of them are homesick or, or concerned about coming home and contracting a virus because, folks, listen, it is a real thing. We have to be wise about the way that we handle a virus. But I'm telling you, that has taken the forefront, has it not? And then you look at the, the behaviors of, of this week, and you've seen what is going on governmentally and in our society, and, and good grief. It's crazy. And we might have opinions about what's going on, but here's what happens. I, I asked this in Sunday school, and I'm curious right now what your answer is. How many of you have gone through this week and you've heard the word COVID, or you've seen something about your country at least once this past week? Yeah, every one of us, and we're probably sick of it. How many of us in the past week have thought anything about how we can glorify God through those two things? Yeah, we want to fix our government. We want our guy to get the office. We want our, our agenda to be what is propagated in our country. And, and yes, we want our country to be biblically founded. We desire that. But listen, when it becomes country, community, church as the priority list, I'm going to tell you this much. We have missed the boat. At what point does God ever call us to a position as Christians that place country before our God? Now that sounds unpatriotic, so please don't get me wrong. Please do not take that out of context and think that we are, are against our country. I'm not. I'm thankful for this place. Listen, I came in this morning, and I think you did too, in those back doors. I'm not afraid of the government right now coming in and shutting us down. We have those freedoms. I'm thankful for that. But the priority order should be this. It is our church, our relationship with Christ, then our community, then our country. And that even makes logical sense because this is what God called us to in the Great Commission, reaching our, our what? Our Samaria, our Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It starts locally, and then it spreads. And folks, I'm telling you, that is something that demands unity in that mindset that we should be concerned about our culture, but it's the methodology to which we engage our culture that is the problem. And running away from it and being afraid to address it biblically is not the answer. And God would be brokenhearted. And Satan would be overjoyed if one of those divisive issues that are going on right now would slip into the church and our desire for being right and our selfish desire to express our, posi our position or opinion, if that creeps into the church, I'm going to tell you, it has opportunity and potential to split us wide open. God forbid that that would take place. Selfishness. MacArthur said this, selfishness is listed first because it's the root of every other sin. Selfishness caused, caused Satan to fall. Selfishness introduced sin into the world. Selfishness invited a global flood. Selfishness is at the core of every sinful behavior. We need to commit to praying that one of the possible motivations for us 
is not to be selfishly driven through causing strife. On any front. Blessed to be biblical founded, biblically founded. But then you have this idea of vainglory. Empty conceit. In other words, it's a highly elevated view of myself and my opinions. It's, it could also be rendered an arrogant pride. In both of those possible motives, the only unity sought after seeks or values only that which centers on me. I'm right, you're wrong. Your numbers are wrong, mine are right. Your belief is... You see how that, how that plays in? Good grief. Rings out all too true. So here's what Paul says. When it comes to strife and it comes to vainglory, when it comes to selfish motivating factors, I go back to the beginning of verse number three. This is what he says. I want you to see this. Let, what's the next word? Let nothing. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Nothing allows for no acceptations, no escape. Literally not even one, no one, <laughs> except I become redundant. That is to say, no one, no matter what he may think, no matter, nothing. This is used as an imperative. You can put an exclamation point after the word nothing, and that will help us grasp what God is communicating. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. Why? Because in the rest of that verse, we have a higher call at stake. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others, there's our word, better than themselves. Lowliness of mind. This is an issue of humility. Now, can I tell you what humility is not real quick so we don't begin with an improper view of humility? In, humility is not groveling. It's not placing yourself in a position as a doormat. Humility is not even manipulating. What, what, would, what would a manipulative humility look like? We'd call it now humble bragging. Um, you'll never believe how many people I had to pray for this week. You cannot believe the hours that I spent Saturday morning taking down the decorations. Hands and knees, blood, sweat, and tears um, vacuuming. The, do you see what I'm doing? It, it's that, that double-sided, I want you to think that I did something for God, but at the same rate, it was so sacrificial. There's no humility in that. You're manipulating somebody into thinking that you are someone that you're not. I'm thankful for the people. Now, I have to say this. It's really sad. <laughs> I love Christmas time. It, it, you have all the decorations, and then that next week, you look around and think, this is, the only thing left is a little bit of the white stuff that's in the carpet we couldn't get out. Sad, isn't it? Maybe that's why we're a little soaked wood this morning. But when you think about this, that's not what humility is. Plato said this, humility is the state of mind which submits to the divine order of the universe, and it does not impiously exalt itself. To the Greek world, humility was viewed as weakness. Humility is the opposite of pride. In secular writings, the word lowliness that Paul uses is referred to, uh, re references the Nile River when it's at its lowest stage. And it would read this way, that the Nile River ran low. That it was, it was down from where it might have been. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. He says, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but see yourself as God sees you. 
See, listen, when we realize that we are sinners that are saved by grace, and that is our story, we have nothing to be proud of whatsoever. Our glorying becomes redirected to trying to figure out how I can glorify God who did the saving, who demonstrated and gave me grace because life is not about me being right. Life is not about me getting the spotlight whatsoever. Life is about me glorifying God. That is the chief end of man. And so watch. In lowliness of mind, in humility, what does Paul say? We esteem others better than themselves. Now, this gets really rough. I'm not going to sugarcoat this this morning. Esteeming has the idea of regarding one another as more important than themselves. Can I ask you, is there another word, biblically, that is less present in our culture today than esteeming? The idea of putting somebody else before myself. I can't think of one. Maybe we can discuss that at some other time. Listen, we live and have always lived in a world that has been centered on me. My goals, my ambitions, what I want to do with my life, how I need to be right, how I need... It's all about me. And as a matter of fact, as often is the case, when it comes to biblical behavior, God calls us to do that which is unnatural. We are loved to love. Even in that statement, it's unnatural because I like to be the recipient of love, but don't expect me to love just everybody. I like to be prideful. I like things to be revolving around me. And of course, the biblical principle would be, God would say, the opposite is true. We regard one another as more important than myself. Esteeming is a word that refers to a belief that rests not on emotions, nor on sentiment, but on carefully thought out facts. You could also replace it with the word better, allowing someone to excel or to surpass, or in some instances to become really practical, allowing somebody to be more important than me. Now, think about why the details of esteeming are so important. Um, the, the definition that I gave you is very important. It is not putting somebody in an elevated position based on emotions or sentiment, but on carefully thought out facts. So when it comes to showing someone importance, who are the people that we are more apt to show importance to? Who's easier to love? Tell me real quick. Who do you find it easiest to love, Robert? Family, right. Who else? Who do you have a not-so-hard time loving? Oh, I'm sorry, Lupe. Yes, ma'am. Okay, friends, family members at church. Somebody said something right here. Ariel? Children, yeah. I hope you love your kids, right? Now think about this. If our demonstration of humility was only based on emotions and sentiment, the people that you mentioned would be very easy to love because it's hard not to love that little child when they come up and pat you on the leg and they want something. It's hard not to love each other because we are all of one faith. Many of you have been coming to church together for decades. It's hard not to love your family even when they do things wrong. It's hard not to love them. But if our emotions are that which dictate who it is that we're supposed to esteem, then listen, we are going to be very subjective. It's going to be a very close-knit group of people that we place in a level of importance better than us. 
And Paul says this, no, this is not what humility is about. This is not what esteeming is about. Esteeming is showing someone a level of importance greater than I am, regardless of who they may be. Regardless of a sentimental or an emotional connection or even a blood relation with that person, Paul says esteeming is a blanket statement. So showing someone who is rich or famous a level of, of importance is easy. Showing someone who may not have anything financially to give me may not be. Showing someone that we, that we love a level of importance is easy. Showing someone that we haven't gotten along with since high school may not be. Showing someone who has done something nice for me recently is easy to show them importance. The problem is this. Watch this. Our esteeming others as excelling past us is not easy, nor is it natural. But Paul says, if you want unity in your church, which is God's desire, it's going to demand humility. If you want humility, it demands esteeming. And for some of us, uh, no, let me retract that. For the rest of us, for all of us, that's not easy. Is it not more simple to go through life and make it about me? I mean, seriously, I, I, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You better believe it is. It has to be all about me. Paul says the converse is true. Esteeming is all about others. Here's how we could re-save verse number three. I'm not trying to provide alternate translations, but let's make it a, a practical statement. The instruction from God's word is we do nothing that is driven by selfish or divisive motivation. But in humility, I consider others as excelling past me, not because of emotions or sentiment. That's not going to be the filter, but because of the facts. What does that mean? I'm supposed to humble myself and ask for forgiveness sometimes. What does it look like? I'm supposed to think of my brothers and sisters as higher than I am. This is what God's word says, and not just says, but listen, then are we to do it. So what fact, if this isn't emotionally or sentimentally driven, if it's factually driven, what fact causes us to conclude this way? What is the fact that allows us to see others as valuable enough for me to humble myself? Well, the answer, beautifully, is given to us in verse number five and following. Here's the fact. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So the fact is, this is the way Christ thought in his life. Do the same. Verse number six, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Now think. If the fact is not going to be sentimentally driven, if we are to be humble and not be emotionally driven, if we're going to be factually driven, here's what Paul does. He takes our attention, he pulls it away from us, away from our selfishness, and he refocuses it back on Christ. This is what Christ did. This is the fact. This is what Jesus did. This is what I'm instructing you to do as well. Adopt the same attitude as Christ. Verse number six, 
There was a position of Christ. He was in the form of God. Here's some facts for you. Jesus was, Jesus is, and Jesus always will be the Son of God. Make no mistake about it, when Jesus came to the earth, he did not begin to be the Son of God. His birthday that we celebrate at Christmas was not the beginning of who Christ was as a person. He had always been the Son of God, part of the the deity, part of the Trinity, in eternity past. Do we understand that? You better believe we don't. But what we do know is this, it is factual to say when Jesus came to earth, he already was Christ. He was showing us what it looked like to be God. So when you see the word being in Philippians 2, it is an expression, it is a communication of that which already existed. And so Christ came in the form of God. He was an expression of deity. See, when you want to learn about who God is, study Christ, because it's one and the same. Colossians 1.15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? And so Jesus was not stealing the identity of deity from God since it was his already. You can't take something. You can't steal something that's yours. So he was the form of God, but in verse number 7, this is the crazy part. This is where things become irrational. And it had to be love because love makes you do some crazy things, verse 7. Not only was he in the form of God, that was his position in verse 6, but in verse number 7, what did it say? But made himself of no reputation. Listen, did anybody in the world, has anybody been born that had a greater reputation than Christ? But yet he set it aside to show love. And so verse number seven, but made himself, he poured himself out of the reputation and took upon him the form of a, what's that word? Servant. Now someone that is serving is concentrating on doing what is the desire of someone else. And if Christ desired to be a servant, if he would humble himself that much to serve somebody else, why do we think that the title of servant would be a slap in the face and would be beneath me? I should have done the research, but I did not, confessing. How many times does Paul begin a letter to these churches and identify himself as a servant of God? I would say probably the majority of the time. He connected himself to that title constantly. So if Christ would do it, and if Paul didn't think it was less of himself, then our instruction is this. I am loved to love. How do I do that? I am displaying unity in the church. By what means? I'm going to be humble. How? By being viewing myself in the way that God views me, in the way that God viewed himself, by serving other people. Okay. I want to stop and think this through a little bit more as it relates to Christ, and then we'll be done. Can we think about the reputation that Christ had Knowing that Christ existed in eternity past, stop and think this through. Jesus left perfection to live in imperfection. Jesus, who was infinite, became finite and placed himself in obedience to death. Jesus, who was sinless, took upon himself the sin of the world. Jesus, who was the only one worthy of being served, became a servant. You want to know what makes something humiliating? 
It is something that we believe is beneath us, and it causes us to lose self-respect and pride. It's humiliation. I, I, don't, I would love to hear stories about some of the most humiliating times and things that you've been asked to do over the years. Things that you thought, I'm not really crazy about that one. Listen, I mean, I worked for United Dairy Farmers for six years. I had to do some pretty gross things. Definitely thought some of the conditions of the restrooms was beneath me, but when the boss says clean it, then you don't have much of a choice. It's humiliating. I just hope that while I'm cleaning that restroom that a friend doesn't walk in and have plenty of ammo to shoot at me to put me down and make fun of me. You know, <laughs> even in this humiliation, if anybody was ever to be humiliated, it was Christ. Think about the descriptions that we just made. He was perfect, infinite, sinless, worthy of service. And he sat aside all of those traits. And he did that which was completely beneath him by coming to this earth. If anybody historically should have been humiliated, it was Christ. But even in this humiliation, he took upon himself the form of a servant. Why? Because Christ already knew who he was. And he never lost sight of the fact that he is the son of God. And I want to tell you this this morning. Listen, when we know who we are in Christ, serving others will never be beneath me. Does that make sense? So if you're involved, listen, if you're involved in the Ashland Loves ministry and you are involved in meeting the physical needs of other people, and you're doing it for the glory of God and to serving others, that is not something that is beneath you. I'm thankful for the group that came out yesterday and made taking down the decorations so much easier so it wasn't just our family doing it. There was a group of people. We knocked it out in just over an hour and got the kitchen cleaned and got some things cleaned out of closets. It was wonderful. Why? Because some of us understand, now I understand Scheduling, okay, didn't work out for some, so don't take this the wrong way. But that there was a spirit of taking down decorations was not under me. It needed to be done, so we do it. Serving other people is never beneath me. How do we know that? Because that's what Christ came to do. And if Christ could come as a servant, then we should never consider serving others to be under us. Because I already know who I am in Christ. So you look at verse number 8 and you find the humility of Christ. And being found in fashion as a man, Christ, these next three words are in reference to Jesus himself. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. To what point? To healing other people? To meeting needs? To, to what point? It went all the way to the ultimate demonstration of love and humility. And he became, what does the verse say? Obedient unto death. Not just any death. The humiliating death of the cross. Punished as one who is a criminal having committed no crime. Oh my folks. Is that not an amazing picture of what we're called to do? And we've made this statement before, and it doesn't make it any less true. Christ obeyed all the way to the point of death. A humiliating and awful way to end his life through the death of the cross. However, it wasn't beneath him. <laughs> we're called to live for him, and we struggle with that. 
So move from thinking things and people are beneath us to thinking that others should excel in my eyes. If they are a living, breathing soul, they are worthy of humbly serving them. Let me ask you, if Jesus, if you were Christ, this, this is a crazy thought. When you think about the humiliation of the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Christ, if you were in Christ's shoes, at what point would you say, I've had enough, this is it, I'm done, I'm out? What point along the way of that kangaroo court and that trial that he went through that was so illegal and so embarrassing and so wrong, if you were in that position, at what point would you say, that I've had enough, I'm the son of God for crying out loud, I can end this thing right now? Where would it have happened? Being wrongly accused? Being verbally assaulted? being physically beaten, where would you have drawn the line? Because I guarantee you, if it were me, I'm probably not going through with this thing. Here is the, the, the attitude of Christ. Verse number eight says this. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Because humility says others first. It wasn't a small task. The humility for Christ meant the forgiveness of sins for the world. Now listen to this, and I'm going to give you a demonstration that you're going to help me with. A man by the name of Paul Reese gave this perspective on the humility of Christ. He says, look at him, this amazing Jesus. He is helping Joseph make a yoke in that little carpenter shop at Nazareth. This is the one who, apart from his self-emptying, could far more easily make a solar system or a galaxy of systems. Look at him again, dressed like a slave, with a towel and basin for his menial equipment. He's bathing the feet of some friends of his, but for their quarrelsomes should have been washing his feet. He humbled himself. Don't forget this, cries Paul, to these dear friends of Philippi. Don't forget this when the slightest impulse arises to become self-seeking or self-assertive. And so to break the bond of your fellowship one with another. Paul was so concerned about the unity in that church that his challenge to be more Christ-like meant demonstrating humility, placing others first. But here's the thing about humility. It's more than just a way of thinking, but it's actions. For crying out loud, if we have to say we're humble, we're probably not. <laughs> it is a submission. It is a, an obedience for us, to God's word, there's a voice crack, to God's word. And not just in word, but in deed. Listen to me, let's make this practical, and I know, I see the time. Some of us, before we even need to leave the parking lot this morning, need to tell our families that this study was for me today. I was listening, I was tuned in, I've made some prideful decisions, and I'm trying to do better. Some of those conversations need to take place before we go home and we forget. Some of us need to go to work and to show Christ better than we have in the past. So extreme that they might ask, when the world has changed in this guy or this lady? Some of us need to go to someone else in this room or otherwise and apologize for divisive words. Because listen, hearing God's word is not the end game. 
Learning without doing leads to pride, Paul says. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Do you have your Bible still open? Are you still awake? Some, some of you. Grab your Bibles or your phones, whichever one you use. Turn them on. Open it up. We were in Philippians 2 for the past, like, 45 minutes. Open it back up, and here's what I want you to do. Now, you don't have to feel dumb about this because we're all going to do it together. Humbling yourselves is placing yourself under God's word and doing what it says. Here's what I want you to do. Can we create a visual real quick? It's hokey. I get it, but it proves a point. I want you to take your Bible or to take your phone and nudge the person next to you with it and wake them up so they get this last little bit. And I want you to take that Bible, however it is, and I want you to hold it over it. I want you to see this visual. Put it over your head. Hold your phone. Nobody's too good for this. You're all doing the same thing. Now, if you didn't bring your Bible, this was not supposed to embarrass you. Okay? My wife was the last one to put the Bible over her head because she's embarrassed. I just, <laughs> sorry. I want you to look around. This is a visual demonstration of what humility is. It's every one of us submitting to God's authority as, as described and prescribed in his word. And we are submitting ourselves in humility to what is taught here so that I am physically representing right now when you look around what it looks like. Every one of us is demonstrating humility by saying, I am going to live and I am going to behave underneath the authority of God's word. You can put it down. That's what it's all about. In a world that is desperately seeking for that which is true, we already have it. We just have to submit to it. And for crying out loud, we can no longer decide what's right and what's wrong by the, by the I thinks or I feel likes, but by what God says. God says it was not beneath him to be humble. Why? Because of the greater cause of unity in the church because of the even greater cause than that. Remember our progression. It's church, community, country. Because I have been called to reach others in my community for the cause of Christ. Therefore, I submit to God's word. Because I want to see change in my country. Because I need to continue to uphold my leadership in prayer. Because I want to see eternal impact done. I want to see something changed. So I submit to God's word. Listen to me. Not just in spoken word and by demonstrating in service because there was some positive peer pressure in the room because everybody was doing it. But it's by word and deed when we walk out of here that we display humility through our actions of serving others. If Christ did it, listen to me, it's not beneath us to as well. I have been loved to love. God help us. To be instruments of change. I get it that our country is a, a, a crazy mess right now. But if the statement is not any more true today as it was, if we're expecting change to originate in a particular city on the East Coast with cool old white buildings and white-haired guys and white-haired ladies, your confidence is wrong. It's right here. In our faithfulness, to living out God's word and reaching a community for Christ so that community can reach the state, so that state can reach a nation, so that nation can reach the world. And listen, that is a huge task. But that's what God calls us to in Matthew 28. It starts right here, right here in this room with you and I doing this.
It's not about me anymore. It's not about my preferences. The command is love. The example is Christ. The purpose, what is it? It's others. 